0: It is not hidden. It is just not possible. It is not hidden. It is just not possible.
1: Welcome to a farther room. I've got something good for you today. What you're about to hear... I feel needs a disclaimer. We live in an age of thought police and everything needs all the right warnings and stickers. My guest and I are not providers with prescriptive authority. We do not practice medicine. So this is not meant to be medical advice to anyone. Anything you hear that piques your interest we would encourage you to seek out information that can confirm or deny it. Health decisions need to be made between you and your primary care provider, so call this the medical equivalent of a parental advisory label on the front of an album. This is a discussion between myself and a guest who I feel fortunate to speak with, We try to unpack some of what was the debacle of the last two and a half years. We share our honest opinions with one another in the hope to stimulate thought and to encourage other people to be willing to challenge their views, no matter what side of the issues you find yourself on. We must hold each other accountable And as I encourage in many other episodes on here, we need to always have humility and be open to the idea we could be wrong. Here is part one of our discussion starting now. Today I have the pleasure of having a conversation with Maria Gucci. She is GUTWAT1, G-U-T-W-A-T-1, on Twitter. I started following her a while back and became impressed with the content she provides on the platform. Hers is a much smarter page to follow than some others. She has a knack for identifying key issues, breaking down a complex situation into an executive summary. And when I realized we shared a professional background in pharmacy, it made me want to have a conversation with her. So thanks so much, Maria, for agreeing to speak with me. Oh, Um, you're
0: welcome, JP.
1: So before we get into the meat and potatoes of the episode, will you tell listeners a little bit about yourself and your work history?
0: Well, I'm an old pharmacist, probably one of the ones who, one of the first PharmDs, uh, doctor of pharmacies in Canada. I graduated a long time ago from the University of Toronto in 1982. And then, um, I lived in Windsor, which is just south, actually, the only part of Canada south of the United States of Detroit. So I was able to commute back and forth. This is before 2001. In order to get the farm B, so I lived in Canada and I commuted daily to Wayne State University and graduated from my farm D school in 1985, and decided to go to Winnipeg because I found infectious diseases or um, infections was my um, love, mm-hmm. and um, I learned it real quick. Like you just had to tell me once, and it was in my brain, and Winnipeg. Uh, is in the middle of Canada. It's very cold, but it's our only place that has the BS4 lab, and it was the place to go for infectious diseases. I spent four years there in, in the intensive care unit. I got very well trained by a lot of ID and ICU. Met my husband, moved back to Ottawa, and started working in some of the teaching hospitals in Ottawa. I had never seen uh, a farm B before, which, uh, so I had to start... <laughs> clinical practices in the early 90s and you know sometimes i have to tell my younger residents and stuff how difficult that was it was very difficult very mm. hard and um you had to make a role for yourself you had to make yourself relevant mm-hmm. and you had to make yourself believable and you had to make yourself reliable or trustworthy that was a big thing you know, you can't just dump and run. And this is what I try to teach all my residents is, it's, you know, and being a team member. So mm-hmm. I learned that all. It was very difficult, very difficult. And when the hospitals merged, the new director of pharmacy and I did not get along. So I left. It was just, he's the boss. You know, the two of us were not going to see eye to eye. I was basically the assistant director by that time. And then I went to worked for government, and um, it was a relatively low-key job. But I worked for a, a place called the Patented Medicine Prices Review Board. It's quite a mouthful. It's even worse in French, by the way. <laughs> and um, it's a quasi-judicial body that regulates the prices of drugs in Canada, which is um, something that was put into place in order to... At the time, Canada had these patent laws that allowed of generics to come in at any point in time. So um, in order to uh, to increase pharmaceutical manufacturing and studies in Canada, they wanted, the pharmaceutical companies wanted more uh, patent protection and in order to not uh, appease, basically Canadians we put some pricing controls, very close to what the Europeans did, but very Canadian. And as part of that process, I had to learn to assess drugs in a very marketing kind of way. How does a drug company look at their drug and how do they place it within a market? And what would their comparators be, the doses, and then what should be the appropriate price? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of science behind it. I had to review a lot of things since most of my drugs were sometimes not yet on the market. I had to deal with very early results, early clinical results, and sometimes, you know, very preliminary uh, stuff. And I got to learn where to go to find that early data and early clinical stuff. And one of the places I learned to go to is the European Union's medicines agency. They do not redact the information to the degree that the FDA does. Mm -hmm. And Health Canada just did not have that information directly. Even though I worked for Health Canada, that department could not share the information with this other department. You understand how that works in government, right?
1: Isn't that nice?
0: Huh?
1: Isn't that nice?
0: (laughs) Yes, and it has to do a lot with the laws and proprietary business. And so there's a lot of legal issues that you always had to deal with. In any case, I learned a lot. I learned how to assess drugs. I learned how to read what the drug companies were saying about their drugs. And I learned to read how, you know, I could tell but why their marketing processes and where they thought their drug was going to do well and where what they didn't say as much as what was said. Okay? Right. So, yeah, very important. (laughs) And so that's where I spent most of my time. Um, Then I got quite sick with my rheumatoid arthritis and I had to quit. I did some, some consulting work during that time, um, got better. And then I went back into hospital after 15 years. I went to work for a small community hospital and that was a real wake up call to see what a difference there was in 15 years. Okay. About how hospital and it wasn't good. I found, you know, mm. things, that would have upset staff years ago would not, you know, not so much the quality of care, but attitudes and uh, teamwork and um, a sense of camaraderie and a sense of all that was gone. And it was very much just a drudge job. And there was a lot of stuff that was let go that would have, um, you know, precipitated a review of our systems kind of thing. But I persevered because it was to set up pharmacy practice in this small hospital, and it was basically what I did 30 years ago. And um, then, um, you know, I got sick again, so I quit. And so I was at home, basically had just finished working in the hospital when the pandemic hit. So all I did is sit there and read everything I could get my hands on for the last two and a half years, everything and um and that's where i started learning and reading and then so for me i went to my usual sources that i know i could find information for a new product a new thing that uh, most people don't know about it and one was the european union stuff uh, some of the um filings that uh, the drug companies would put and then even their press releases and i would comb the literature to see exactly what was said about what. So that's uh that's kind of my background.
1: So you you kind of segued perfectly into my next question and that's you know, based on your experience, you know well that pharmacy is difficult work at times. Mm-hmm. You know, me here in flown over country in the southern United States and you in the Great White North have that shared reality of having spent many years in the grind of health care. Mm-hmm. You know, at times pharmacy is underappreciated work. Mm-hmm. Um, dur- during the pandemic, I have thought that pharmacists should have a seat at the table when discussing therapeutic interventions you know they have institutional and in the case of someone like yourself professional training in the area mm-hmm. of drug regulation bringing a drug to market they know a lot about the charitable organizations we refer to as pharma <laughs> and they they understand kinetics better than other healthcare mm-hmm. professionals do, mm-hmm. do you agree that pharmacists have a role to play in our broader discussions we have in healthcare settings about COVID?
0: Absolutely, but I don't think I've heard any really good pharmacy voices, and generally speaking, there's a good reason for that. Or, it's not a good reason, but there's a reason for that. It's been my experience that they do go if uh, this is mostly media driven if the media does go to pharmacists they don't go again because we tend to not give them what they want they want black and white answers pharmacists rarely do that yeah they want yeah a soundbite mhm a soundbite we tend to be nuanced we tend to see the whole situation generally not always but you know we tend to see that um and you know, we tend to think and talk in risk versus benefit or those kinds of things. And media doesn't like that because I've been interviewed before, and they don't only ask once. And they, I don't give them what they want. And it's um, I, I'm not sure if it's uh, across the board for all pharmacists, but we can see i would say generally we can see the gotcha questions coming at you because we get a lot of gotcha questions right burn dogs all the time yeah we can see this coming so we know uh yeah so they don't come to us they don't you know the media doesn't come to us to ask us all kinds of questions now that's not to say that larger groups sometimes don't ask the pharmacist to be in in ontario for example the vaccination effort was actually uh, run by a pharmacist, and uh, huh. because he had lo- yeah he had logistics expertise. I know him quite well. He's military, and he worked out of a children's. He is the director of pharmacy at a children's hospital. He knew logistics. He knew drug management. He had a lot of experience overseas. So he basically started running it up. He didn't last long. They basically got rid of him because I think you know um, <laughs> the. Right, or he he became you know these things no longer became important. He did a really good job, at least on the logistics part, and um you know, so if there is no way he was sort of in my view, allowed to speak to the everyone else because he didn't follow the script mm-hmm. that was obviously put into place that's so where we are important, we have. A voice to say, but unfortunately, pharmacists are a little how do I put it? I think we're a little too <laughs> honest and we're a little too um, 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 even peeled or not that's not the right word, but um, we don't give people necessarily what we what uh, they're looking for
1: you know it seems to me that the rep pharmacists have made for themselves during the pandemic is not to help people's knowledge about therapeutics or vaccines but really instead to take almost a social justice warrior type role and refuse to fill prescriptions for certain medications. It seems like more, more often than not, if I hear about a pharmacist in the last couple of years, it was somebody who refusing to fill certain medications we don't speak of. (laughs) And what's, what's, what is your view of how that kind of unfolded? What do you think's going through their minds?
0: Well, it's going to be, this is not going to bode well long-term for pharmacists, obviously, you know, this kind of activity. Um. I have, because I'm a Canadian, I we didn't have this problem up here. Um, and I have to tell you what ended up happening with those unmentionable drugs because they didn't get dispensed either, but it wasn't the pharmacist, okay? Generally, it, it wasn't, that's not how it happened. I would say there's issues on both sides, both the physician side and the pharmacist side on this. It's um not good because neither really looked at what the outcome for the patient will be. So, yes, it's possible. I am personally um, a little bit agnostic on IVM, uh, if we want to call, if, you know, if we want to use the short term, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, It but it doesn't matter because if the patient, so if the safety Your primary role as a pharmacist is to ensure that the safety is fine. So if your dosing is okay and the safety is okay, the indication oftentimes tend to be between the physician and the patient. You can tell the patient that I'm not so sure you're going to receive any benefit from this drug, Mm -hmm. but it's unlikely to cause a problem. Right. If, you know, So the way I would have done that and said, if you don't get a benefit within 48 to 72 hours, you make sure you tell that doc it was useless. Okay. Right. That's the way I would have handled it. That, you know, if, even if the corporation or someone had told me, you know, this is no good. I don't know what happened that then, uh, you know, we didn't focus on the patient outcomes. And then, however, I think what happened or i you know, from what I can see, and I we never get this in Canada, this whole idea that pharmacists are practicing medicine without a license. No pharmacist has ever been accused of that here in Canada. It just doesn't happen. It's like people just look at you like, what do you mean? So I think it's a very American thing. What hmm. happens in Canada instead is that IBM is only made by Merck. Here in Canada, we don't have generic hmm. because it's still under patent. So what happened? Really? The supply dried up. Huh. There was none to order. We couldn't even dispense even if we wanted to because there was none to order because pharmacists were dispensing it.
1: So how long is a patent period?
0: Well, it. I think it came on to the market for scabies in 2017, so they would have had a 10-year patent. And huh. the only way to have brought it in is if Merck had basically, if the supply had dried up, is for Health Canada to declare it was an emergency drug and to bring it in from another company. And, of course, that didn't happen. Well, so we couldn't dispense Ivermectin in Canada because the the uh, supply dried up from about April to December or January of this year.
1: On On this side of things, my view of it has been... And not even necessarily just ivermectin because it gets the most, you know, it gets the most press Correct. because it's horse paste, you know, yeah. um, according to the the FDA Twitter account. Um, you know, it's not just that. It's hydroxychloroquine. It's ivermectin. It's fluvoxamine. It's colchicine. It's metformin. It feels like to me that So depending on what state you live in, in the US, most states have some laws that outline, it it gives the pharmacist leniency to refuse to fill a prescription. And they, they usually give professional judgment as part of the language in there. But historically, and what I've said on Twitter is, that's always been used in the past, in line with exactly what you said. You refuse to fill a prescription if there's an imminent danger to a patient. If, Mm -hmm. you know, there are screw-ups that happen, sometimes the dose is really wrong, sometimes there's a contraindication there, and sometimes it might be a forgery if you suspect Mm -hmm. that it's not a legitimate prescription, you know, for something like OxyContin. They put that in there so that Pharmacists can refuse to fill it if they feel like there's going to be some kind of harm come to the person.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But what didn't happen in the past is a pharmacist say, I'm not filling this prescription for Losartan because Lisinopril would be much better.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It was, mm-hmm. these
0: even, are. Even if you thought that was true.
1: Right, exactly. The, these are philosophical refusals to fill. Instead yeah. of, is there a is it legitimate? Is it does it check all the the legal boxes of being a legitimate prescription? And is there a harm to the patient? And none sure. of those, none of that comes into play with this. And so I, I agree with you completely that I think that it's hurt the profession. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know all the implications of it yet. I think we'll maybe find out in the next two or three years. I think there's some damage control that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, so there's, there's so much to discuss. And I think you and I both could talk for days and days and feel like we're not even scratching the surface of what needs to be discussed. Yeah. We could talk about mass, mass, Repurposed drugs, MABs, Remdesivir. Mm-hmm. But I want to focus on vaccines for a bit because they have been the most contested issue by mm-hmm. far, in my opinion. So, based on your experiences and training, what are some general bullet point criteria that a new vaccine product needs to check off like what constitutes a regular run-of-the-mill you know safe vaccine that's like the mmr or any other vaccine the flu shot any other vaccines that people normally get
0: that's a real hard question actually it's a hard question i did review some vaccines for PMPRB, um which i didn't like but i remember reviewing which one did I review? Gardasil first, and I thought, oh, you know, no big deal. And the more I had read about it, the worse I was like, what in the world is this made of, and what are the studies like? Because the studies were I'm used to nice, good RCTs, and the quality of the trials and what the endpoints were. I'm like, what kind of, you know, clinical trials do you have? And the adverse event issue on Gardasil was not super scary to me because I'm used to drugs. But I thought that Gardasil was not a vaccine that was going to have a long life, that eventually they would have to modify it in 10 years or more. Same thing with the Zostavax vaccine mm-hmm. because they weren't covering all of the... um herpes simplex uh, types that needed to be covered. And I thought, you know, we're going to have the same old problem with like we do with antimicrobials. You're just going to select out other HPVs. And lastly, you still have to do your pap smears. Why are we doing this vaccine? Like, what benefit does it present? Same thing with rotavirus vaccine. I remember going through that and going, why are we having the rotavirus vaccine? And the reason why... It's because it keeps the kids in daycare or and saves hospital, not even hospitalization, but basically daycare and child care costs. That's the reason why the government of Ontario, for example, paid for it. There is no. So uh, this woke me up to the need or the requirement for vaccines isn't like a good measles vaccine, which is clearly mm-hmm. a benefit and the risk-benefit ratio is in the favor of those vaccines. Mm-hmm. And even uh, vaccines, I would say even the shingles vaccine is probably uh, the one that is currently on the market. When it first came out, I told all my, I told most of my um, patients to wait. Wait another 10 years because a new one's coming. <laughs> and I was right because this one is what. I said, this one, you're going to have to get vaccinated in 10 years. That's all it lasts. We have no idea. And it doesn't do this, this, and this. I already knew the first one, the softavax, was going to uh, fail until the Shingwix came out. And um, so, you know, I put everything into context. It's not that it's good or bad. The clear thing with this vaccine, with the mRNA vaccines in particular, was that it is not a vaccine. Okay? Mm -hmm. It is clearly... Not a vaccine. The And the biggest issue with vaccines, as we call them, and includes this one, includes the mRNA one, the biggest issue pharmacists should know about is that it's almost impossible to make a vaccine without some contamination. We're used to having nice, pure products, right? Nice, pure drugs, you know, with uh, this amount of, you know, a purity in it, 99.5%, you know, if it's 100 milligrams, it's plus or minus 2 or even 10% is kind of high. Nice, reliable in each tablet. Even for generics, we have all those standards. This is not true for biological drugs, including biologics like Humira. It's not true. You cannot make it to the standard that pharmacists are used to for drugs. So, vaccines almost always are contaminated with some of the leftover um, egg yolk proteins or antimicrobials that are in there, or in the case of mRNA or DNA or even Gardasil, um, bits of DNA, RNA, double strength RNA, nucleic acids, proteins of all kinds, hex cells, whatever, in all of these vaccines. They can't make them pure. And, when I read about the MR they can't. That's the biggest issues with these um, biological products because they're living products, right? And us as people are as different, each one of us, as anyone. We're all individuals mm-hmm. and unique. So it is almost impossible to make these vaccines, each dose or each vial or each batch, reproducible. Can I, does that make sense?
1: It does. Can I try to... I'm going to try to state it in a different way. And you tell me if you agree with this. Okay. So it it kind of had to do with a question that I asked a colleague of mine back in the spring of 2021. So you have these vaccines, which we use the word loosely with vaccine. And I I acknowledge that we're we're just flat earthers here and we're um, not very bright. And so we're going to say that they're not vaccines, but we have actual reasons for saying that, and we're getting into the reason why. Mm-hmm. So they contain genetic code, right? And it's it's mm-hmm. code that's supposed to be taken by our cells to make the actual antigen. So Correct. the code that's in there is very specific, or it's supposed to be very specific, right? So mm-hmm. you have a sequence of mRNA, And that sequence is taken and produced into actual viral protein. So if you're a manufacturer and you have the task of taking a a strand of genetic code and reproducing it to a mass scale where we're talking hundreds of millions of vials...
0: Mm-hmm.
1: how do you go about making sure that the the strand of code that you're wanting to introduce to the person is the same from vial to vial? And I think oh, the excellent. answer to that is you can't, really.
0: <laughs> you can't. No, you can't. And... Um... As I got told, though, once, because I asked questions of actually someone who worked in a regulatory affairs in Europe on Twitter, I said, and they said, it doesn't really matter that much. Anyway, I'll go talk. A little bit. It doesn't really matter that much because as a vaccine is a single dose. OK, so it matters more for Humira, of which they have standards put in place. But for vaccines, you know, don't worry your pretty little head about it. It's only one or two doses. So it doesn't really matter how How good or how pure it is. So we tolerate less purity for this because it's only a single dose. And I'm going, we're already talking about boosters by the summer of last year. And I said, what happens if this is not just a single dose and we have to give repeated doses? And besides, that excuse doesn't fly for me, you know. And, but that is the reason why. A lot less standard for vaccine because they're single doses. Okay, so I'll tell you that that's the rationale. Whether it's appropriate or not, it's uh, another thing. The thing with the um, mRNA, they are by definition under FDA guidance, genetic therapy. So anything, any mRNA or nucleic acids that are put into the body to produce or express a protein, such as mRNA, are classified as genetic therapy. No ifs, ands, or buts. However, they don't have to, a product that has mRNA in it, does not have to go through the genetic product division if the indication is for infectious diseases such as vaccines. Hmm. So even though it's a genetic product, it doesn't have to follow the genetic product assessment. It follows the vaccine assessment. And we've already discussed the vaccine assessment is, very truncated, the amount of clinical trials required, they're small, the amount of um, real um, assessment of toxicity, mutagenicity, genital toxicity is abrogated, it's smaller, and um, all those things because it's a single dose or two doses. So the whole vaccine assessment process is really inadequate in my view for a genetic product, and especially for giving repeated doses, it is really unconscionable, in my view, and that's what we're dealing with. Yeah, it's and really scary.
1: That there are so many things that just don't make any sense, and virtually yep. nothing has made sense for over two years, in my opinion. I want I want to go back and just. Put one qualifier on something that I said earlier. When I said you can't ensure that you can replicate the sequence of mRNA accurately, that doesn't mean that what they want to go in that file never makes it into that file. It just means Correct. there is definitely some of what they want in there. But yeah. when you are, when you are, in the situation that they were, and they were absolutely rushing to get these mm-hmm. things out. And you can debate on whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. Emergency, pandemic, a lot of people were dying. You can, you can justify getting something to EUA status in those circumstances. But it's important yep. to point out that when you start to scale it that much to where you're talking about billions of people receiving it, there there absolutely is variability baked into the process.
0: Absolutely.
1: Human, so let me go through the... I'm sorry, I was just going to say human beings are flawed, machines are flawed, equipment is flawed, everything that goes into making something, there's always just a little bit of swing back and forth as far as the at the end product and how much purity is actually there and that's why there's Mm -hmm. a legal limit you know that's why there's Mm -hmm. like when you compound something you're you want to get it within a certain percentage you know Mm -hmm. 95 plus percent accurate as far as the dose administered so Mm -hmm. that's in what we're talking about is the, the fact that we never speak of this in our dialogue when it comes to these products. We don't ever talk about, you know, we don't really know what's in there. Nobody's allowed to look at it. We haven't even seen the actual sequence. It's never been given to the public. It's proprietary. And so it's like, in this, this long after the fact, when are we going to get to see it?
0: So, JP, I think you have hit the number one issue as far as I'm concerned. I think a lot, so this is my rant, if I'm allowed to rant. Yes. My rant is that (laughs) we are caught up in the immunology, or really the immunomythology, um, a lot about adverse events. We're caught up about efficacy. We're caught up about this, and we're caught up about that. In my view, it's a... It's not that it's not important, but it's a distraction. So Let me go back to how the mRNA is made so that your readers understand or your listeners understand these these steps. So first they make the DNA, which is a plasmid. So they make the gene mostly, um, I don't know if they link them all together. Sometimes you can actually print it out. They put it inside the E. coli, and the E. coli makes the mRNA. That is called the transcription step. And for each, so transcription already has a bit of an error in it, okay? So that's already one in every hundred to a thousand, one in every thousand to 10,000 base pairs, there's an error. So Mm -hmm. you're not going to get that mRNA. And then you have, once the mRNA is inside your body, it gets translated to the spike protein. There are errors that occur there. One of the biggest issues that I was reading in the EMA reports is when they scaled it up from the clinical trials, they scaled them up, they made like 500 ml bags of mRNA. They then scaled it up to 40 liter bags. You know how big a 40 liter bag of these mRNAs, which are like kilodalton in size? Mm -hmm. and When they did that, um, it became very difficult to get the mRNA is complete. So the mRNA comes out and you have to basically add things to the front and to the back of it so that it becomes um, a a true mRNA product. Mm -hmm. And they ended up having a bunch of mRNAs that did not have what they call the poly A-tail. They were truncated. They were screwed up. They were half an mRNA, whatever. And those are being injected into us. And so Like you said, we can't get rid of all of it, but you would think maybe it's 5%. But at the time these vaccines were released, the Pfizer was allowed and Moderna were allowed levels that were close to 50% or 40% of the mRNA that was in them would have been what we call truncated mRNA or or, um, disjointed or not complete. And nobody knows what that mRNA does in our body. Maybe it gets broken down, maybe just causes an immune response, and maybe it gets translated to an aberrant protein. Nobody knows. No one's tested. No one's seen it. If you, would, gonna,
1: you would think they'd the want to look at that.
0: Nope. The EMA <laughs> did say, you know, what's happening. They did ask for it. Um, and et cetera, and the excuse was because it doesn't have this, what we call the poly a tail, it doesn't get transcribed, so don't worry your head about it, or we're going to look at it later. Under the gene therapy assessment, that would have been required. Under the vaccine assessment, not necessarily. It's not necessary part of the guidance. So they really try to work to make it pure. It's better. But it's just the nature of making the mRNA mm-hmm. that you're going to have bits of mRNA that nobody knows what it does. The second problem, and probably this is the biggest issue, is something we call codon optimization. And it's important for pharmacists to know this because, um, do you remember a long time ago, oh, maybe it's not that long ago, when, um, erythropoietin or, you know, EPO, was causing all these pure red cell aplasia. You remember that?
1: I don't think I remember that.
0: Okay, so there was um, um, the e, uh, erythropoietin made mm-hmm. for people like Eprex was being made for um, patients who were in renal failure. So that is the, you know, the hormone or the protein that makes, was made um, through a similar process and it was codone-optimized. And it was that one codone optimization that made that Eprex have an autoimmune reaction that caused pure red blood cell aplasia. So one change in the mRNA can cause a reaction as serious as, a, uh, as aplasia. And in this vaccine, we have 60 changes in the codone, and we have something called um, an untranslated region mm-hmm. that comes from humans. So it's important to realize that this mRNA, and everyone thinks the mRNA is like viral mRNA. It is not, and it's not human. It's totally synthetic mRNA. Mm-hmm. It's a biosynthetic product. It's totally made up. It's not human, and it's not viral.
1: Putting this in a little bit different terms, if I'm just an average... Person out there, if you go to a pharmacy and you get a prescription filled, they give you, and I'm not sure how the laws work in Canada, but in the US, they're required to give you a packet of information about that medication that you're taking home with you. Mm-hmm. And also the pharmacist, if needed, can look for what the the package insert if there's a question he or she needs to look something up about it and the prescribing information will have often a molecular structure it mm-hmm. will have biodistribution mm-hmm. volume of distribution it will have a half life it will have um time to peak concentration and um none of that is knowable about these products
0: it is it is um something exactly right it is something i've been screaming about for a long long time especially the protein that's being expressed because as i said the spike protein or the mrna is not The same thing as the virus mRNA. And by the way, a company in Germany tried to take the viral mRNA exactly as it is, and they could not get any antibody response in humans. It just wasn't translated. The body looks at it and goes, What is this? and spits it out, and Mm -hmm. that's it. Mm -hmm. So it had to be humanized, okay? The biggest issue is we don't know if that spike protein produced by that humanized mRNA, that biosynthetic mRNA, even looks like the Wuhan spike. We don't even know. And then I talked about the errors in the transcribing and translation. So that means that every mRNA, every spike protein that you're making is probably different. And some have mutations in them. Some have a bot, some have minor, and we don't know what that spike protein is doing. We know that the spike protein has something called an of Pharmacists who know a little bit about infectious diseases and bacteria, the staphylococcal enterol B toxin, which is what causes, you know, scal- the, staphy- the scalded skin syndrome and causes all the um, sepsis that happens with staph, it has a region in there that's very similar to that. Can you imagine putting any kind of um, mutation that would make that part of the virus even more? pathogenic. So we have no idea. It is all proprietary. I have Mm -hmm. been spending six months to a year looking to see if anyone has reported what that spike protein looks like. From a pharmacist's point of view, the mRNA is a pro-drug. It is not the final product. We never talk about the final product. It is a pro-drug. The end drug is the spike protein. Right. And we don't know what that end drug looks like, what it does, where it goes, how long it's produced in the body.
1: And how much of it.
0: And how much of it, that's correct. And I can tell, and then you've got those truncated mRNAs. So I can tell you right now that it's individual for each person and it is unpredictable and and unreliable so that you cannot know how much you're going to get of what for each patient. It is like Russian roulette, not a clue, not a clue. And also, there is no relationship between where the lipid nanoparticles go and how much spike protein is produced. So usually we think linearly that the more lipid proteins go to your liver or your intestines or, your, say, your muscle, the more spike protein would be made. Not true. Because each cell type has a certain propensity to do translation. And none of this has been studied. Not a thing. So this is why we're having the, I think, the adverse reaction profile that is so weird and so wide is because of all these variabilities that we have just been talking about. And this is hard, extremely hard for a physician to wrap their head around because I think that's my view, because they see it as a vaccine instead of looking at it as a drug. I'd like to think the pharmacists have a better idea. And I do find when I do talk to pharmacists about this kind of thing, they either look at me with horror in their eyes or they just like, I don't want to hear this, I don't want to hear this, this is like, but they understand what I am saying. If I talk to physicians, they turn blank. And they're like, why is that important? So I think that is one of the big issues that we're having with this whole uh, vaccine issue. And um, my job, or I'd like to think is to raise these issues to uh, those that are willing to listen.